Hey, 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 your backup plan tribe. We are here today for another awesome show. And now I can take off my glasses because I don't have to see any fine print. How's everybody today on a beautiful July week? Um, if you are watching this by our live stream, welcome, welcome. If you are listening to us on our podcast, welcome also. We have uh, we are on Talking Taboo with Tina, uh, brought to you by your Backup Plan app. My name is Tina Gim. If you are new here, you probably haven't met me yet, so welcome aboard your Backup Plan tribe. Thank you for coming and listening. Um, if you're watching our show, I am an emergency preparedness coach, a best-selling author of In the Blink of an Eye. Yes. Everything seems to occur in the blink of an eye as of Surfside in Florida was in the blink of an eye. It's, it's this quick, everybody. That's how quick things happen. Yes, things happen quickly. Um, I'm a financial expert and an app developer of your backup plan app, which helps you put your life all in one place and so that you are prepared in case of any unpredictable circumstance, and it takes that painful aftermath out of the tragedy. We are having so many wildfires in British Columbia right now. You, we have over 100, 100 major wildfires in BC right now, and it's only the beginning of July. So it's, it's frightening and Many, many evacuations. Many people have lost their homes, have lost their cars, have lost. There's so many instances that I can explain to everybody that it's good to be prepared. It's good to have your crap all in one place so that you don't have to worry about what are you you going to grab in a five minute evacuation notice. And in some cases, it's not even five minutes. It's two minutes. What do you grab? You put your shoes on and grab a jacket perhaps, or your wallet and you're out the door. That's all the time that sometimes you are given. And that's even a blessing because sometimes you're not given any moment. So why not be prepared for the unexpected because you never know what will happen. I'd like to welcome my listeners. Welcome United States and Canada. Thank you. Thank you so very much for your listening. And I'd like to welcome my German listeners because the third largest listening component is Germany and then Ireland and then Sweden so far. So welcome Germany. Meine deutsche Freunde sind unserem Podcast willkommen. Wenn Sie Kommentare haben, können Sie gerne Fragen stellen. Also danke für deine Freundschaft. Thank you so very much, my German listeners. And I don't have an Irish accent for you yet. I am still working on that. But let's... Um, Check out the links below if you would like to give us a beautiful review. Perhaps I'm going to put the hand going across. Let me see if I can get this right here. I have a special hand that I have <laughs> designed just for pointing to down below right there 
is the subscribe button and press on the like and share with your friends and family because there might be something in our wonderful broadcast today that resonates with you or someone else that you would like to share this with. We have a special guest on our show today. His name is Chris Robinson. He's from, from beautiful Texas, and I'm anxious to go there again. It's a beautiful place. He is, uh, our title today is Come On Man, What's Your Story? That's for sure, and it's perfectly perfect for this show today. One thing that we can all count on is that we're all going to get sick, disabled, or lose something, or lose everything, or perhaps pass away from disasters, tragedies, or in the blink of an eye. And that's what we're all here about today because we want to show you that it doesn't have to be complicated, that you can save your photos, you can save your um, documents, and you can save all of your information so that you and your guest user can make sure that your bills get paid or that they know where your documents are when needed or you know where your documents are or that you have your photos all saved on a backup drive. So you don't have to worry if your house goes up in smoke. You, that, that's my primary concern, that when you lose everything, you have lost your life. And there's nothing else that we can do to repair that. And so we take that painful aftermath out of that tragedy. So if you haven't, um, we will also have a link below for all of the show's notes on our blog if you would like to also read the broadcast. So welcome aboard. I'm going to bring on Chris and have him. Hi, Chris. Hi, Gina. How are you? I'm awesome today. How are you doing in Texas? I'm doing great. We're doing great. We're staying warm. I would love to be there right now. And I want to introduce you. You deserve a great introduction with your wonderful story. Um, he is the author of Come On Man. He's a counselor. He focuses on adult counseling as well as marriage counseling. Now, after this wonderful journey, that has put him into this place in the life now. As, you know, I can't believe you take on the challenges faced by men and men definitely see things in a different light when things happen. And I'm so anxious to interview today to hear your story, Chris. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it. So where did it all start for you? Well, for me, it all started, uh, you know, it, I was I was raised in a little town called Maplewood, New Jersey. And uh, when I was 11 years old, my father's business transferred their headquarters from New York City to Houston. It was a, a oil and gas uh, company. And so when I was 11, uh, me and my two brothers and three sisters and our parents loaded up, moved everything down to Houston um, in August in Texas, which was no. a, a shock in itself, uh, getting off the plane and feeling that 
hot blast, uh, that Ferno. Um, and so uh, we made this transition in August of 1971. And we're adjusting, we're trying to figure out who our friends are, we're getting into school um, and feeling a little bit disconnected. And it was in November of that year that a trauma hit our, our family. And you talk about uh, things changing in the blink of an eye. Uh, nothing could be truer in our story because uh, as we got settled in and we were looking forward to uh, Thanksgiving Day uh, in November of 1971, and my brother had been out with some friends the evening before after work, and um, they went out in a car. They had been drinking. Uh, there was a car wreck and my brother was killed um, in the early morning hours of, of Thanksgiving in 1971. And so- Were they all killed in the car, Chris? My, uh, no, no. My brother was the only one killed. Uh, another one was injured and uh, 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 the, the two other people in the car, you know, survived. Um, but my brother was in the in the front seat, and that was before seat belts were required, and um, you know, just an unfortunate tragedy. So that is um, the beginning of our story in Texas. And what well, was? Uh, how old were you then? I was eleven at the time, and my and brother how? was my brother was fifteen. Oh wow, he's so young. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, so, so you, you had we, that horrible knock on the door. Yeah. And, and actually as an 11 year old, uh, you know, my, my next oldest brother and I, he was, uh, probably, uh, 13 at the time. And, and he and I had a room together and, and we were looking forward to the, uh, Thanksgiving day parade in Houston. That was our plan for the morning is we were going to, uh, get up, get dressed, go down to the parade, come home, have our Thanksgiving dinner. And so, you know, when my mom came into our bedroom, man, I was I was fired up, um, just just ready to go. And we could see immediately that something was different. Something was wrong. And that's when she she told us what had happened. And it was just like a a, a numbness. Mm -hmm. that overcame our entire family. Like an unbelief, like it's, it, it can't be true. Yes, it's, it's stunned, absolutely stunned. And yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know how to process anything. And if we consider that in the, in the 1970s, um, counseling was absolutely not a thing. Right. Yeah. That, that, that if you were in counseling in the 1970s, it's because you had some kind of a serious mental disorder. Um, and that's not something that anybody was going to talk about. Right? No. And you usually went to a facility somewhere, I think. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and so we were left to all deal with it in the best way that we knew how. Um, and I was the youngest of the six children. 
Um, my, my oldest sister uh, was actually uh, in town, but she was in her uh, freshman year of college mm-hmm. at that point. And so she dealt with it far differently than I dealt with it. You know, she, she did, she spoke to people about it. She spoke to my parents about it. She spoke to her friends about it. She, she grieved, she cried, um, for, for me and my brother, you know, 11 and 13, we, we didn't even know what to do. We didn't know how to respond to this. And, and so it's really interesting to look at how it affected each of my siblings differently. Um, Especially boys. Yeah, you probably weren't given the opportunity to really cry and let it out. And you had to be tough and strong. And Yeah, yeah, that, that was it. We just we didn't even know what to do with it. And so for me, uh, that's essentially what happened is I just I yeah. just pushed it down. Um, people around me, people at my school had heard about what happened. It was on the news in Houston and and. Um, it was like nobody knew what to say mm-hmm. about it. And so since they didn't know what to say, it was kind of like that I was avoided, right? Like the plague, because, you know, it, it's just we, we don't know what to say. So we're just going to go down the other hallway, you know, and that kind of thing at school. So it was it was really interesting um, as I look back on it now. Mm-hmm. And, and realize how I did cope with it, which was in an unhealthy way. Um, I pressed it down until the point where I was about uh, 14. And then at age 14, I was in, in high school and uh, started drinking at that point. And in Houston in 1971, uh, nobody was checking your ID. You know, if you walked into uh, one of the corner stores, you could get a beer. You know, that wasn't a problem. Or you could give somebody money to walk in and get you a beer, and they'd be glad to hand it to you when they came out. So I started uh, drinking when I was about 14 and uh, found that, you know, I I enjoyed that um, and the drinking – uh, some of my friends then got their their driver's license at age 15. And so they would take us out to to bars um, and strip clubs, you know, and, and and all these places, like I say, they would they would let you in. Um, and, with you know, when you think about what's going to uh, get 14, 15, 16 year old boys going, um it's going to be the you know eroticism of strip clubs, and then there were uh, porn bars in in Houston, and so uh, we wound up going to some of those, and that created another addiction for me. And I and I tell the story in my book that I'm I'm fortunate that I did not become addicted to drugs or, or alcohol, and the only reason is because I also enjoyed sports. I was an athlete, and doing um, two a day workouts for football uh, in August in Texas uh, did not go well with being out and drinking heavily the night before. No. So (laughs) So, it kept kept you more on the narrow road. Yeah. So, so from the, the, you know, alcohol, I, I was able to say, okay, I can't do that and play my sports, 
but I had also had this exposure to porn that I could do without any problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody knowing about, nobody finding out about. And that really kind of developed into an addiction that, that you know, carried into adulthood uh, to the point where, you know, hours would be spent uh, viewing that. You would go um, you would go through the, the shame and the guilt um, that that, you know, a gambler goes through, a shopping addict goes through, an alcoholic goes through, a drug addict goes through. Addiction is addiction. Right. Because you have the craving to do it. And then yeah. after you do it, you're like, why did I do it? Why did I do that? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Why yeah. And, and it's one thing, you know, to do that when you're in college and single and kind of living your own life. But then there's another level of guilt that comes into play when you get into a relationship and you get married and you have children and now you're spending, um, you know, hours uh, supposedly working late. Um, but that's not what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And, and so you're, you're taking away time from your family. There are some times where you're taking away time from your employer. And so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that. And then, Oh, by the way, add on one more complicating factor. You know, if you uh, label yourself a Christian, um, well now, you know, there's a whole nother, level of guilt that I shouldn't be doing this. I know better. I know I shouldn't be doing this, this, you know, sinful behavior and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it. And you just start heaping guilt upon guilt um, and getting to the point, you know, hopefully where you, you recognize that, wow, this is really, really bad for me and I, and I need to change something. And, and there was a point um, that I was kind of forced into that. Uh, to, to what do you think that point was? What do you think that you know? It, it's in, it's interesting because I I uh, I I was always involved in the church from the time that uh, you know my wife and I were married. Uh, I was involved in the church, and I happened to be um, oh I don't know this probably you know twenty years ago uh, at a church where they were focusing on recovery from addictions. And, you know, for some reason they asked me, hey, would you be willing to serve on this committee, be a part of this group that puts this together? And I said, yeah, sure. I'd, I'd be glad to do that. You know, they saw me as, a, you know, a leader of the men's groups and church and things of that nature. Isn't and that so, ironic? A little yeah. ironic there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was kind of like, okay, I'll do it. And in the very first meeting, uh, the leader of that group who uh, was a, an alcoholic in recovery um, said, Hey, I think that we all have our addictions, things that we just can't control. And if we're going to be genuine and authentic in this group, as we go into helping people in their recovery, um, maybe it would be a good idea for us to just kind of go around the, the table and say, Hey, what, what is your addiction or what was your addiction? And Tina, my heart just started pounding. Oh, I mean, I mean, I could feel myself getting, cause I'd never talked to anybody about this. I hadn't talked to my wife about it. I had nobody. Right. And so here I am at this group of table with about eight people. And the only thing that I could be thankful for in that meeting is that he started on the person next to me and went around so that I'd, I'd be the last. 
Um, I was, God forbid that he should start with me because I couldn't even hear my, my heart was beating through my ears. Um, it's like hiding in a classroom when the teacher says, um, who knows the answer to this question? And you're like, can I, where can I hide? <laughs> I, I literally, I, I felt like a caged lion. I felt like a wild yeah. animal that had been trapped and just pacing back and forth. That was the feel. I was looking for a way out. I was, I was yeah. thinking, do I, do I get up and leave right now? Excuse myself yeah. from the meeting. You must um, have been sweating. I was everything you, you oh. name it, everything physically that you could experience in anxiety and panic. <clears throat> I was experiencing in that moment. And when it finally came around to me, um, I told him, you know, I do have uh, something that I've struggled with, but I've never talked with anybody about it. And I just said, I can't speak with this group about it before I speak to my wife about it. Good for you. So um, I went home how that many, evening. How many were in the group? Uh, there were about eight of us in the group. Um, and uh, so I went home that evening and, and, and sat down with my wife and, and really had the, the toughest discussion with her um, that I've ever had. I didn't know how she was going to react to it. And she was so overwhelmingly gracious. She just looked at me and said, you're my knight in shining armor. And I was saying, wow, even with this. Even with even, that. Even with this. And that really, um, I think, is the point at which my recovery began, right? Because when we have an addiction, um, and we keep it secret, we keep it in the darkness, it has complete control over us. But once we yeah. shine a little bit of light on it and we find out, hey, you know what, we were safe in doing that, that there are people who want to help. And I was able to go back the next week and let the group know what this was. And the group who has experienced addictions looked at me and said, we understand. We get Isn't it. Isn't that nice? You know, that's why we're here. And so the experience that I had was one of encouragement and support um, because it just so happens that I was doing it around the right people. It wasn't my plan. You know, if, if, if you want to talk about a backup plan, no, there was none for this. <laughs> no. <laughs> there was no plan for this at all. And what's interesting is that um, – it began to change who I was, right? So when I look back and and I look at the loss of my brother and how that changed the trajectory of my life, you know, what would things have been like had that not happened? And there even, you know, every Thanksgiving morning still today, that's the first thing that I think about yeah. is my brother, Yeah. right? But there, there comes a time where, um, for me, uh, you know, I, I can't tell anybody how to grieve or what, what are the right stages for them. But for me, I was able to arrive at a point where uh, tears of sorrow turned into tears of laughter in remembering our relationship right. and remembering right. the stories uh, that, that we had together of our, of our life together, albeit short. Um, he was somebody that I looked up to greatly. And so you know, seeing how that impacted me 
and seeing how it impacted uh, some of my siblings as well, because they had their own struggles. Uh, you know, a sister that dealt with alcoholism, um, another a sister that poured herself into work completely, total workaholic. Um, and, and so we, we dealt with things uh, differently and it changed the trajectory of all of our lives. But what's interesting is I never would have, I don't know that I would have experienced that level and feeling of love and forgiveness and grace had I not been through that path of addiction right. that, I, that I went down. Of um, some sort. Yeah, um. right, right. Um, and so, you know, that began to change me. And then as I, you know, went on in my career and things happened professionally, then, then uh, change continued to occur um, unexpectedly, right? In, in the blink of an eye. That's, well, hopefully it was a good change. Um, what do you think would have been different if your wife had been upset and flew off the handle and not be supportive in that instance? You know, I, I think that it would have made me want to keep everything in the dark. Um, I, I probably would not have gone back to the group the next week. I would not have had the courage to do that if I had been rejected if I had been judged, if I had been condemned in coming out about this, why would I want to do that again to anybody else? Right. I, I would just keep that my secret. Because um, it hurts too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It does hurt too much. And, and you don't want to experience that kind of pain more than once. Again. Yeah. And, and so I think that I probably would have just kind of, uh, withdrawn a little bit. I think that it would have changed uh, my marital relationship. You know, when I felt judged and condemned instead of unconditionally loved. Um, I, I think that, that this actually strengthened our relationship. And I think that had that not been my wife's response, then it probably would have served to uh, erode the relationship. Right. Um, in your case, um, it wasn't anything that was going to hurt her or hurt you. Whereas drugs and alcohol could impact yourself as well as those that you love. Yeah. So I, I guess in that instance, it could be a little bit different, but just well, having that support is just Beautiful, yeah, yeah. Really. And, and, and we think that, and, and this is where I, I start to get into the mindset of men, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we think, well, this isn't hurting anybody. Well, it is. It, because when we look at porn, um, we're, we're watching uh, people who in many, many cases did not choose to be doing what they're doing. We get into the idea of um, uh, sex trafficking, you know, and and, and yeah. when and we're watching porn, like it or not, we are more than likely supporting sex trafficking, right? When we're watching porn, it changes our uh, view of uh, the opposite sex, right? It's objectifying. Right. It's objectifying. 
Um, and it changes our view of healthy relationship and healthy sexuality. Right. And so I, I for the longest time, you know, did this with the idea that it's not hurting anybody. Right. 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 But it's no, just it with was, you. Yeah. But it was changing me mentally mm -hmm. uh, to, to an unhealthy thought pattern. And when that happens, then it was, um, also changing my relationship with my wife, mm -hmm. right? How I looked at her. And so it does have an effect, but sometimes we don't recognize it. Yes. Right. And, and it's uh, predominantly um, a, a problem for men. Um, that's not to, to make a, you know, a broad statement. There, there are absolutely women that, that struggle with pornography as well. But it's primarily men because that's, you know, we're, we're, we're visually aroused. And so um, that's, you know, that that is an automatic draw for us. And we don't think that we're doing ourselves or anybody else any harm. Right. Um, but don't you think in the 70s, I mean, porn was a lot different than it is today? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, it was a lot less accessible. Right. Uh, I, I told you that I, I for me to to watch porn in the 70s, um, I had to go to a porn bar. Right now, I could I could get magazines and do that without any problem. But so tell me, Chris, what is a porn bar? A porn <laughs> bar is, yeah, a porn bar is 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 a, a, a bar that you walk into and it's like a movie theater. Where they're playing you know, the hardcore pornography and you sit at a table and you've got, uh, you know, a waitress serving you drinks and um, offering other services as well. Right? Is it They're, all on the screen then that it's like it's a, on the screen? There are it's like a rooms. sports bar. <laughs> yeah. Right. So to speak. Yeah. OK. Yeah. That's that's what it would be the equivalent of. But it was just, you know, pornography. Is that and still now? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think number one, they became illegal, um, and number two, they weren't needed because it was so much easily, uh, Easy uh, much more easily accessed. You know, when the internet came along, you know, who needed it? And so now it's it's become a. Oh, I think this is a thirteen billion dollar industry uh, annually in the United States. So you have the strip joint still now yeah you still have the 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 strip you know the the strip bars that that people can go to um and they probably yeah they do they still have the uh, adult video shops that you know you can go into you can rent movies they've got private rooms um but they i don't think that they're allowed to serve alcohol in there right um you know we at the time that uh, you know i was 14 15 16 years old um, we pull up, go in, get a drink at the table, get served and, and watch. So and do you, you talk do you, about unhealthy coping that yeah. was really unhealthy coping. Do you think you, when you look back, why did you go down that road? Is well, it think, because you threw everything down deep inside and, and, yeah. or was it more of, of that social aspect of, of being brought into this group of friends? 
Well, I think there's a combination uh, of, of things. Um, one absolutely is suppressing this, not knowing how to deal with it. Um, and then looking for some escape from that, you know, we're, we, whether we know it or not, when our brains are traumatized, um, it, it can say, if we look at PTSD, right, the brain is traumatized. And typically what we will do in normal situations is store memories and they can be pulled back up when needed. Um, but there are some memories that are stored and archived in our subconscious that we're not even aware of. Now with PTSD, what happens is the traumatic event runs on a loop. You can't get rid of it. Right. And that's where the nightmares, the flashbacks, the, the hypervigilance, the startle response comes from. And so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about trauma and pushing it down, um, it's going to find a way back up. Right. And so the way that we want to uh, escape from that, it, well, we want to find an escape, right? Yeah. So there's unhealthy and there's, and there's healthy ways of doing that. Uh, naturally the healthy way I know now as a counselor is the processing of trauma, which is part of what I do with people who have experienced trauma. Um, the unhealthy way is to just find an escape, a, a diversion or a distraction, such as alcohol, which was where I went, right? And right. I found a group of friends that I enjoyed drinking with. And one of those friends had a license and said, hey, let's go down to this bar. And we were like, yeah, okay. And once we saw what we saw in that barn, you look at the impressionable minds of 14, 15, 16-year-olds and man, let's go do that again next weekend. <laughs> that was awesome. Right. And so that, you know, what, what seems like an awesome experience um, turns into an addiction because the brain needs that hit. Right. You need that happiness. Yeah. Of yeah, some sort. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's dopamine, right? Yeah. It's that, it's that uh, excitement, that arousal, um, whether we get it from, you know, any number of, of sources, that's what addiction is. It's looking for that next hit and then never getting enough of it. Right. Um, when do you know you have a problem? You know, sometimes you don't. Sometimes somebody else tells you you've got a problem. Uh, sometimes you get fired from your job. Uh, sometimes your spouse says either get help or we're done, but then there are other times where you do recognize it. Um, you, you hit what they refer to in the recovery community as rock bottom, where you just can't sink any lower. And you recognize that either in, in the severest forms of addiction, I'm either going to do one of two things, I'm going to die or I'm going to recover. Mm -hmm. and, and most people are going to say, I don't want to die. So I need to go find help. Hopefully it doesn't get to that point where, where somebody has to hit that level on their own, that they might be surrounded by somebody um, that says, Hey, we've got you get, get, get to AA. 
get a sponsor. Let's 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 work on this. Work on this. Yeah. Did, I mean, you are very lucky. Absolutely. It was like it was like the universe came down and said, you know, we're going to put you into this group and you're not going to have a choice basically. You weren't really yeah. And yeah. I don't know if you would have done it on your own. You know, like Probably if they just not. A, Probably no. not. Um, and, and, you know, thank, thank goodness that uh, somebody did intervene without even knowing mm -hmm. that they were intervening. Yeah, it's quite amazing, really. Right, right. Because so many people have, have these hidden secrets. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Sometimes they don't know really they do. And sometimes I think in the, the ones that I've had guests for have been given that opportunity, that epiphany moment where they realize that they need to do something, but then they don't know what to do. Right. Right. And so it was clear for me. Um, that, you weren't you know, given choices. <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I like this discussion because one of the things that that we always need to be clear of is that people with addictions are not bad people. Right. You would think that as somebody who had an addiction to pornography, that I had no moral compass at all. I did. You know, it's, it's that moral compass that uh, created feelings of guilt and shame within me. But it's also that moral compass that made me say, I've got to speak to my wife about this before I speak to anybody else. It's not that I was a bad person. I had a bad I habit. I can't imagine the feeling, the courage it took you to do that. It scared the hell out of me to sit down that and tell my wife, I have a problem. It's pornography. Like and and I've and I've been struggling with this for years. And get the response. I mean, not no hesitation. She there just looked me straight in the eye, didn't blink, and and said those words of encouragement to me. What did you think you were gonna get? I don't know. I thought I, I guess I thought I was gonna get, you know, a okay, we need to work on this. We need to do something about this. We need to figure out how to fix you. Nothing like that. Nothing like that, which really reinforced my, my value as a human being, mm -hmm. right? Because this, when you deal with guilt and shame, you deal with self-esteem issues as well. Self-worth. So in just those few words, it's kind of like all of that worry washed away, right? And, and, and as I say, I think that that's where that recovery process began because number one, I knew I was loved. I knew yeah. I was encouraged. I knew I was supported. Um, and then the, this was followed up uh, several years later with me losing a job that I had for 17 years um, not because of any problems with the addiction, but because there was a managerial change 
Um, right. There was a, a new president of a company brought in. And so from his old company, he brought a lot of his old people. And there was just a revolving door of the existing managers and leaders of that company that left. And I was one of those existing. And so it was, again, in the blink of an eye. Changed. Seven, 17 years. They came in one Friday afternoon and said, you no longer work here. You know, here's a, a severance for you if you would clear your office out. And I was happy. Happy holidays. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stunned and numb once again, right? And so, so it's what another that did, trauma. Another yeah, trauma I, hits you. Yeah, and I think that any time something like this happens, it causes us to have to step back and say, who am I? Right? And so this was another one of those steps where, uh, okay, I had I had moved beyond this addiction that had its its talons in me and now I call it the devil yeah yeah and now uh i was uh being successful as an executive with this company and in on one friday afternoon found myself out out the door and recognizing over the next week or so as i was stunned by this that I had placed my identity in being with this company. This was the company I'd been with since I got out of college. Yeah. And uh, I always thought my father worked for the same company from, you know, for, you know, 35 years from the time he got out of college. My grandfather uh, worked for um, uh, the same company. And I just figured this is the way we do things. Well, in the 80s, we found out, no, it's not how we do things. Values changed, right? Corporations yeah. were changing and, and it was going to be things were based on what are the, you know, what are the quarterly returns? Um, and so there was a change that took place there. And I had to take stock of who I was as a person and recognize that I had put my identity and poured my time completely into who I was as an employee, who I was as a provider, right? And that was kind of how I was measuring success is mm -hmm. income and uh, how I was viewed by my peers, the level of uh, professional respect I got. And so here we go with another loss, right? So loss can occur in a lot of ways. Um, and in this case, loss of a job that caused me to reflect on who I was and recognize that my values had gotten totally out of whack. And in that process, I recognized that I had to reprioritize and that family is first. But doesn't it kind of make your stomach like go upside down and and start pulling all that crap from down in your feet that you oh, yeah. push down, you mm -hmm. know, it, it just turns everything up again and says, hello, yeah. I'm here again. Right. Right. And, and it's, it does. It has you, when something like that happens, you reflect on everything. You don't just reflect on the last year or a couple of years. You reflect on how you came into this circumstance. How did I arrive here? Did it all start with moving 
from New Jersey yeah. to Texas. What if that hadn't happened as an 11 year old? Yeah. Would I have been experiencing any of this? Would I have had a different, you know, outlook on life, a different worldview? We don't know the answer to that. No. No. But, but what I do know is that we have a choice in how we respond to any of these situations. And, um, you know, having a plan does help your response, but getting blindsided by things means that you have to be able to uh, step back, think about these things, talk to somebody about them and determine what's my direction from here. Right. And so I, I, I think that it was that recognition that, hey, things can change in a heartbeat professionally. And I got my values and my priorities way screwed up. So that when I reached the age of 50, I started thinking ahead. Now, that seems a little late to start thinking ahead. Yeah. But but um, and it is in a lot of senses. But I think that we are we go through stages of life where we're focused on certain things, having a job, income, climbing the corporate ladder, raising children, you know, having enough money to put kids into school and all that kind of stuff. And so I focused on all that stuff. And, and it was really when I hit the age of 15, it was by no means a midlife crisis or anything like that. But I started thinking about what does the future hold for me? Because when I reach retirement, I don't want to um, spend all my time playing golf, fishing, sitting in a rocking chair on the porch. I want to contribute. I want to be an active member of society. I want to be giving back uh, to the community. And so um, I, you know, being being a, a person of faith, I prayed about that for, for a few years. Um, literally a few years. I prayed about it for a couple of years. I thought I had the answer uh, that I would go into counseling and I looked up uh, what it takes to become a licensed professional counselor. Um, and that was getting a master's degree, which I didn't have, uh, going through a, a 3000 hour internship, which I hadn't planned on uh, doing a practicum, um, which none, none of that. Yet. Especially yeah. at 50. Right, right, right. And, right. and so, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, almost 30 years since I've been in school. So I, I shut down the, the laptop literally and, and just, uh, you know, told God there's been a misunderstanding. Um, I didn't want this to be hard. I didn't want to really have to work for this. Um, I can talk to people. I can listen to people. So just how do I do that? And uh, I, I went back and, you know, prayed about it for another year and it became a um, occupying thought. Yeah. I mean, during the day, sitting at my desk and I was in the uh, field of construction and uh, an executive in the construction industry reviewing contracts. And I would be uh, sitting there reviewing contracts and, and maybe five times a day I would have this thought come through counseling, counseling. Oh my gosh, can't get this off my mind. And I'd go they to bed. They were telling you. Yeah, I'd go, yeah, I'd go to bed at night, my head would hit the pillow, and my mind would just start working on what do I need to do to get an application in for a master's, you know. And I'd wake up in the morning and the same thing before my feet even hit the floor. I'm thinking about counseling. And so finally I, I said, okay, you know, I, I, I give. Um, 
I, I checked out some uh, universities, their master's degree programs. Um, how can I do this while I'm still working, you know, full time uh, in, in my industry and uh, figured that out. And in, in uh, a couple of years later, uh, started into that program, actually that year, uh, started oh, cool. into the started into the program and uh, completed and my look master's at, And look at you now. Yeah, right, right. So, and, and, and when I started thinking about that at age 50, it was not with the idea of early retirement or quitting the job that I was in or anything like that. It was about what am I going to do when I retired, age 65, 67. But as I went through this master's program, I became so passionate about what I was learning and so passionate about the opportunity that laid ahead of me. And the focus for me started coming into working with men, working with men who have had struggles and challenges just like I have and, and determining where did that come from? Let's deal with that. Let's deal with the root cause. Now let's deal with whatever problems or challenges it might be presenting in your life today. I became so passionate as I went through these studies that as soon as I finished my master's degree, uh, I um, went into counseling full time um, into the profession of counseling. I, I needed counseling as well, but, <laughs> but I went into the profession of counseling and uh, now have my my own uh, practice and wrote a book, which, you know, again, that was not part of the plan either. Uh, so sometimes it's just. Um, by my willingness to um, be open to change and to make a choice when the right options are presented to me to move forward with those and not to be fearless or not to be fearful in doing that. And, you know, when I go back to not being fearful, all of that goes back to that moment when my wife said, you are my knight in shining armor. I learned there. I didn't have to be fearful. But from when you were younger, it brings up that fear, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and it's interesting well, because as, as I got into this idea of providing counseling for men, all of my professors and all the professionals that I spoke with said, that's a great idea. It's so badly needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you'll go out of business doing that because men don't come to counseling. And I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to be dissuaded by that. No. Um, I, I'd been fortunate enough in my career that I didn't, I wasn't doing this for the money. Um, and so I, I sat at my desk here in my home office uh, one morning, just thinking about, okay, if men will not come into counseling, how could I reach out to men? and at least give them some tools, some resources right. for identifying their challenges, for normalizing those challenges, for letting them know, hey, we none of us are immune. We all struggle with the same things. We just don't talk about it. We stuff it down. That's why yeah. we have heart attacks. That's why we have the stress levels. Health issues, have. yeah. Yeah, yeah, all these health issues that come into play. Uh, so it, it was really, Interesting. I started writing down every challenge that I had faced personally, 
every challenge that I uh, knew other men uh, had faced, who I'd come in contact with, because at that point I had uh, been a speaker at some men's retreats and a table leader, uh, you know, uh, talking with groups of men. And what I found at those retreats is that these men really without exception would break down at some point over the weekend in tears that they had held in for decades. Right. And I recognized, wow, these problems run so deep. These struggles are, are really impacting us. So I just wrote down on the line sheet of paper, every struggle challenge that I could think of that men had dealt with. And, and essentially those items became the chapters to this book. Oh, um, I, cool. just, I just started writing about um, values, right? Because a lot of it was, you know, for me was my values had gotten way out of whack. And right. I recognized that with most men, um, they had lost the, the, the compass for their values. And uh, so the, fo the focus of yeah, right. the value, right? because and, uh, when you lose, well, I think, I mean, I'm not a man, but I think love comes into play somewhere in there, mm -hmm. you know, and fear and love will conquer, but fear sure makes the challenge difficult. And yeah. sometimes it's just all in your head. It has nothing to do with, real life mm -hmm. uh, but you're so fearful from your own past experiences that it's coming into your real life at the moment and yeah. changes perception around things and you started with a real interesting comment there tina and i'm not a man right the interesting thing is is that although i wrote this book for men taking on the challenges faced by men these are challenges that everybody faces. Mm -hmm. The truth is that men and women respond differently. Right. Men are taught by society or culture to handle it. Right. Deal with it. Deal with it. Get up, move forward, quit complaining. Don't cry. This is not about feelings. These are all the things that are messaged to us as we're growing up. Right. Yeah. And so we learn to stuff things down. We learn not to deal with them. That's why at these retreats, men would break down because they had been stuffing things for decades. Right. Yeah. Now, this is generally speaking, and I, and I hate to generalize on anything, but generally speaking, men are going to internalize feelings and women do a much better job of externalizing feelings. Women do a, better, a be, much better job of being in community with each other, with nurturing each other, with sharing their burdens with each other, right? And so their response to these challenges oftentimes is much different and much more successful than right. it is for, for men. And so that's why I titled the book the way I did. But you talked about our life experiences. Um, you know what? There are women who have gone through the exact same things yeah. that I have, right? Loss yeah. of a loved one, dealing with an addiction, loss of a job, 
right? And, and all of these things that begin to shape how we are. Who you are. Right. Loss, loss of a fiance can be just, I've seen that with quite a few um, clients and it's amazing what an impact mm -hmm. it makes in their lives. Um, I'm not sure if it's because of the age they are or I, I'm not really sure, but it's, it's just, oops, it's just very surprising. Yeah. And I think that our age does have a lot to do uh, amongst many other factors um, with, with how we handle loss. Mm -hmm. um, we, uh, you know, we, there are some people who are naturally more resilient than others. Um, there are some people who um, have more uh, maturity. And when I say that, I don't mean it in, in a, a negative way. I mean, if you emotionally, at, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me, as an, me as an 11 year old experiencing a loss versus my sister at uh, 19 or 20 years old, right. Experiencing the same loss was handled very differently. Do you think right. there could have been more love amongst in your family to kind of help with that whole, I'm not saying your parents weren't, or the household wasn't loving, but. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah, we had a very you know. loving and a very, very tight family relationship. But when this happened, it was almost like a splintering effect. Yeah. Cause nobody knows we, what to do. Nobody knew what to do. And we were all trying to figure out how to handle it individually, including my parents. Right. One, one of the things yeah. that was really interesting um, is that this was a point in time. And, and it's interesting to me because I was thinking about this just this morning. This just hit me this morning that when this happened, it was my mom who came in and told us the news. My dad was broken. Right. He couldn't even vocalize it. Emotionally broken. Um, this, this is probably the only time that I witnessed my dad sobbing. Right. And I was thinking this morning how Interesting it is that it was in that moment of trauma that the roles reversed. Yeah, right? yeah. That the woman took, was stronger. Mom took over as the strength. And, I, and to this day, I don't know how she did it. I don't know how she remained as strong as she did through that. Um, and my father was completely emotions on the sleeve. Yeah. Just, just, yeah. um, and so it, it's interesting when I say that we were all trying to handle it in our own way. Um, I think that that was part of my mom's way is that I've got to stay strong. I've got to yeah. keep moving. I've just got to put the next step put, forward. Yeah. Right. And, and so that's how she dealt with it. My dad, uh, you know, broke down emotionally, uh, with this and, 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 uh, you know, my dad, uh, wound up dying at age, 58. Um, Holy and, cow. Yeah. And I, and, and uh, this happened 
when, you know, they, they would have been in their uh, 40s. But I firmly believe that the trauma and the effect that it had him. on him and the stress that that put on him affect his immunity, affect his health. physiological response to health and disease. Um, because it, it, it broke him down. And, and uh, you know, my mom just, you know, found a way to keep moving forward. And each of us siblings found our own ways, uh, some uh, successfully and, and healthy, um, but others of us not so much. Went through a few obstacles first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But, but those obstacles um, can serve a purpose, right? Again, what are, what are we going to do with them? Uh, and, and so we have a choice to make and, and the choices that I've made and, and the very fortunate circumstances that I have found myself in uh, with the supportive tribe, if you will, both my family and my friends, uh, the, the people in my community that I hang out with um, have enabled me to move forward and overcome and now turn around and lend a hand of support hopefully to, to, to other men who may be going through some of these same struggles. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure they all are, all have their struggles. Um, we all do. That's we right. all have a struggle of either a past or something job wise or love wise or relationship wise or family wise or. Yeah. And if we can just shine that little light on it, and, and say, okay, this has been hidden in the dark for a long, long time. Let's recognize you're in a safe place. A safe place and I guess realize, what am I scared of? Mm -hmm. What am I really scared of? Because maybe there doesn't have to be anything to be scared about, but I'm right. making it all up in your own mind. Yeah. And, and I think that many times that's it. You know, we, we become paralyzed by our fear mm -hmm. when, uh, in fact, if we will just talk about it, what we'll find out is that there's nothing to be afraid of. Now, it's not to say that everything, you know, has a has a happy ending. No. Um, but it is to say that if it is fear that has us keeping a secret in the darkness, and it's going to affect other areas of our life and those to move other, forward. Yeah. And those other areas of our life are not good. We're not going to be able to live uh, to the fullness and quality of life that we, that we want to. Um, so, you know, even if we have to address a problem, an addiction, and even if it results in loss of a relationship, we may individually be better off for having addressed the problem. Right to be able to move forward. Right. Right. But, but I would imagine in most instances, it doesn't happen that way. It's probably a very small percentage that it doesn't really go the way you hope it goes. I would yeah. think. Right. Right. Uh, I, I think that most people who are, are in a relationship are going to be very supportive yeah. of each other. Normal. That's been my that's been my experience uh, for the most part. You know, obviously being yeah. in, in counseling, I see uh, everything on the spectrum. 
right? So that's why I, I always make it a point to say now that, you know, a fairy tale ending is not uh, guaranteed here for, for anybody. Um, it's but, not guaranteed, but it's only because you push forward to do it, make it your own world yeah, that you yeah. will, that you wish. Right. Because right. you, your mind can go the opposite way too. And your world is your oyster, so to yeah. speak. You know, and, and so. what I would say is that when we address our problems, uh, whether unexpected things happen after we address those problems or not, that most times we move forward with a better quality of life, right? right? I know that I'm moving forward with a better quality of life. I also know people who have identified addictions that have created loss for them, but they are still moving forward with a better quality of life right now. Um, Absolutely. They, re they recognize, they own their, their own stuff. Um, some of the conditions that they created, um, but they don't beat themselves up with it anymore. They don't deal with the guilt and shame. They recognize that, Hey, yeah, it was a mistake, but I'm not going to let it define me. No, it's done and over with. It's right. It's in the past. Yeah, absolutely. What and kind of message do you have for the listeners? You know, I, I think that, um, follow your passion, take care of yourself. Um, you know, I say self-care is not selfish. Think about what you want for your life. Sit down and really do a deep dive into your values. Um, that's, that's why I start the book with the exploration of values, because if we haven't done that, then everything else is just on shifting sand, right? So I think that we, we explore our values, we identify our passions, and then we live into those. We lean into those and recognize that, hey, if that's gonna require change, okay, don't be afraid of change. Right? Change because, can be awesome. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I look at the change that I made, the shift in my careers, and, and I, I gave up a, a six figure salary to be dropping, you know, to next to nothing. Yeah. Essentially and start and, and, and pretty, pretty fearful in doing that, you know, to choose to do that at, uh, you know, age 50 and recognize that, I don't know, you know, I might have another, you know, 35 years on this rock. Um, <laughs> you know, do I run out of money or what? And I, and I just thought, <laughs> you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to have faith in this. You know, I've, I've prayed about it. I put the work into it. I'm going to go do it. And uh, a year into it, I was looking back and saying, man, why didn't I do this 30 years ago? <laughs> it's kind of like practicing as a golf uh, in golf or sports, really, because it you look at that huge road ahead and think, can I achieve that? I really want it, but can I achieve that? And you have fear and you have worry and obstacles might get in the way. Um, there might be less training time or, or, you know, you're not hitting the ball like you should be doing, or you're all up in your head. 
I always, I always seem to bring everything back to sports somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, but the main thing is, is that when you look at every one of those athletes, right? Um, we look at every athlete that uh, has been going through the Olympic trials and now Olympic athletes. They believed in themselves. They had somebody else around them who believed in them as well. So, you Absolutely. Know, so I, I would say, Hey, what, whatever it is that you're doing, believe in yourself, surround yourself with people who believe in you and you're unstoppable. Set, set up, set up boundaries, you know, because the people who are not going to be supportive of you, quite frankly, don't need to be around you. You don't need to allow them to influence you. Um, so, you know, believe in yourself and surround yourself with the right tribe and go do it. Don't be, don't be fearful. That's for sure. Well, thank you. That's awesome. I always think of being up at home plate, trying to hit the ball and you could have this parent that could be yelling, come on, hit the ball. And then when they don't, the parent says, oh, again, what's wrong with you? Yeah, right. <laughs> or, right. or you could have that parent. It's Okay. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to get it. It's it's just a matter of of practice or time or yeah. thought or whatever. We'll keep that, working on it. We'll keep yeah, working on it. We'll, right. we'll, we'll get it. Right. The first time so, Babe Ruth swung a bat, he didn't hit it out of the park. But he got to the point where he could point to where he was going to hit it. That's That's amazing, really. Amazing. You know, and I think life is like that, too. It is. When we get when we get focused and passionate, the world yeah. is your oyster. Belief Absolutely. in ourselves. Belief yeah. in ourselves. Oh, that's awesome! Thank you, Chris. My pleasure. Uh, it's it's a, a beautiful story. I'm sorry that you've gone through all of that, and I only say that because I'm Canadian and I have to apologize for something. <laughs> 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 That's okay. I'm glad you got one apology in so that you can you can breathe now. <laughs> exactly. No, I'm um, glad to share. I'm glad to share the story. It was an honor to be with you today. Thanks for having well, me. Well, I I I I don't even know what to say about your courage and bravery and bringing that out to the uh, to the forefront for people. You know, um, that's truly amazing, and and um, I just love your story. Um, everybody, your book description stuff is all down below. Oh, I got to get my finger out again. <laughs> your information is down below <laughs> for the book. Come on, man, taking on the challenges faced by men. I have put those links down below for everyone. And I want to thank you for coming on our show. It was amazing. As usual, we focus on real and raw conversations with our listeners about their journey from a life-changing event in their life. That was a life-changing few events in your life, Chris. Yeah, it took a lot of turns. Yes, but you've had the support. It's amazing, though. I wish your wife was right there behind you. I'd say, good for you, because... Uh, you know, she's a part of this too. And yeah, yeah, and not physically, thanks, she is spiritually. <laughs> thanks, thanks to her, you know, of how things all went for, for you. Absolutely. And, and your, her. and your, your church community and, um, the universe for whatever that looks like for people, um, 
That's right. It guides you if you're listening. It mm -hmm. guides you. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So you must have been wanting something a little bit for the universe or God to come down and say, I'm going to put that in front of you and you're not going to be able to say no. Right, right. Or, you know, you have a choice, right? Now I'm going to give you a choice. Yeah. And you can you can choose what to do with it. Here's your and, test. And when that idea, yeah, when that test was thrown out to me, I had a choice to make. I don't like tests. <laughs> I don't like those <laughs> lessons that they keep giving us. It's <laughs> They're not always easy, but we grow from them. No, no, we always learn something from them. That's for sure. So I would like to thank everybody. Take a moment and subscribe to our channel down below. Uh, click on that link. And I just I have to sing that song this time. Ring my bell. Ring my bell from the 70s down below right there. So just make sure that you click on uh, the bell because it lets notifies YouTube to put it in front of more people and that you don't miss a show that's coming up perhaps that you'd like to see next. We have so many cool, cool guests um, each and every week, sometimes a few times a week. And just like Chris, um, no one is Superman. And so expect the unexpected because you never know um, what could happen tomorrow, that's for sure. If you were thinking of someone today in your mind right now while listening to the show, you could reach out by Facebook, by Skype, by Zoom, by actually picking up a phone for that matter, maybe even a text. Tell that person how much you love and care about them today because you don't know what tomorrow may bring. So please, I hope that we've inspired you and motivated you to start thinking about your unique plan and our one year list, our one year anniversary for our wonderful podcast, Talking Taboo with Tina, is uh, coming up to our one year anniversary. And we are expecting a huge celebration at the end of the month for the beginning of August. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, we're going to bring on 10 of our wonderful guests, and we're going to have a mystery question. And they're all going to have time to answer that mystery question. Um, and it's going to be quite interesting because they don't know what the question is. It's going to be our own Hollywood Squares moment. So thank you. Thank you for sharing your time with us and watching us. I love each and every one of you. Um, I always end with Carol Burnett, and I know Chris knows who Carol Burnett is. It's I our do. era. It's our era. <laughs> Absolutely. Beautiful Carol Burnett, uh, a wonderful, beautiful person and comedian. I'm so glad we had this time together just to have a laugh or sing a song. Seems we just get started, and before you know it comes a time we have to say so long. So long, my friends, so long, stay safe. And remember that our journey is made up of a whole bunch of storms. So why not be better prepared for the unexpected? Lots of love. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for coming on our show today. Thank you. You're welcome. Much love. Stay safe, everybody. Bye for now.